because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing America's dangerous material dependence on China. And by material dependence, I mean very specifically dependence on China for many of the vital materials in our civilization, uh, and also arguably many of the materials involved in the non-vital sources of energy that are increasingly being mandated, namely solar and wind. Now, I've been increasingly interested in this topic and more broadly the various threats from China that relate to energy. Uh, I've become more interested in these over the past several months. And a few months ago, I got introduced to a young uh, industrialist and analyst named Maxwell Goldberg. Now, I looked on his LinkedIn, and this guy graduated from college in 2019. Uh, but I was really blown away by talking to him. I mean, he has really done his research, and he is really obsessed with the issue of where do our materials come from? And this is an issue that I'm interested in, but I found that he knows way more than I do. And he also has a very strong and I believe healthy patriotic interest in making sure that America is not overtaken by other nations, specifically ones that are anti-freedom, uh, above all China. So I thought I would bring on uh, Maxwell, or Max, as I call him, to discuss this issue. And I've already recorded the interview. Sorry, by the way, those of you watching, you can't see me. The interview will be visual. Uh, I had a bunch of stuff going on and I'm doing a speech and I don't have a good place to record this where the visuals are any good. Uh, so sorry about that. But I have already uh, gone through the interview and I was just even more impressed with Max. I think you're going to really enjoy it and I think you're going to learn a ton. Uh, the only thing I can say that's negative is some of the stuff he talks about is scary as hell, but better to be informed now uh, about the threats than to be informed later when it's too late. So with that in mind, enjoy the interview with Maxwell Goldberg. I'm joined now by Maxwell Goldberg. Max, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I'm really, really, really stoked to have this conversation. I think there's a lot of interesting, unique, and fruitful convergent points that will help us make the case for more human flourishing around the world. All right. Well, that's that's a good start. So I got introduced to you maybe two months ago by a mutual mm -hmm. friend named uh, Joe Polish. Mm -hmm. And I'd say I've, I've met a lot of people through Joe. All of them are interesting in some way, but I he you're the first person that I've been introduced to that was really sort of on his own, like philosophically aligned with me on energy and materials. And you are that way at a at a very young age. I mean, sometimes people say I'm young, but I'm 40 and you're a lot younger uh, than 40. So I'm, I'm really interested in how you, and, and you know, you come from the tech world and yet you're very interested in the U.S.'s well-being, which is somewhat unusual for that world. And then you're very interested in energy and material security, which is definitely unusual uh, in that world. So I'm curious, how did you become interested in all of these issues? So I'll start by giving a little personal answer, and then I'll go move into a professional answer that I've developed through my work experience. I am a proud second-generation American. My grandparents came here after the Nazis occupied their various countries from Austria to Hungary to Czech, to Czech and Slovakia. Uh, after World War II, Germany was in there as well. Uh, so I have a deep sense of realism, uh, objectivism, and what truly creates human flourishing and what human suffering truly means. Uh, my grandfather was running from the Nazis for five, six years before he was able to make his way to the West and then eventually to America. So I'm deeply grateful for my, my Americanism and my um, new, newly found American heritage. So that, that kind of is, is the basis for my fascination with manufacturing materials um, and the, you know, let's call it the American economic prosperity dream that I've come to develop. Uh, on a professional side, I have noticed uh, through my work, uh, let, let, me, let me back up there as well. Um, I also come from a community that's all about questioning, asking why, asking where does stuff actually come from and why does it work this way? And that, that was welcomed uh, when I was growing up. And so that, that's built into my philosophy. Uh, I then took that into my professional work and I made my way into the tech world through a variety of engineering projects um, and through 
a variety of business endeavors. Uh, I ended up working as an entrepreneur in residence for an entrepreneur out in California, which had me touching a lot of different areas of emerging and let's call them exponential technologies for lack of a better word, things like AI, quantum computing, material science, uh, energy technologies. I think that folks who are don't necessarily align with us would throw solar and wind in there as well. Um, and so I've had a lot of exposure to these different types of technologies and, and programs in progress. And the thing that, that I became very disenfranchised with while I was doing that work, um, again, coming from my background of realism, knowing what real suffering is like and knowing what it's like to not have, um, I realized that the focus in the United States right now is really on this digital economy. It's really on how do we move really, really fast digitally? How do we build things really, really quickly digitally and create new, exciting technologies using digital tools? And there are some amazing innovations being done in the digital world. And I love technology. I'm a technology optimist. I think that technology only leads to more and more human flourishing as you average it across time. Um, but what I realized that the United States is missing, and particularly the technology startup and entrepreneurial ecosystem is missing, is a real understanding of where their stuff comes from. Um, they think that just because they go build a new machine learning algorithm or they go design a new quantum computer or they go design a new augmented reality device, that we automatically have the ability to go scale that in manufacturing, that we automatically have the ability to go scale that from a raw materials um, feedstock standpoint, that we can automatically go mine those different materials. And that's not true. It's fundamentally not true. I'm also very interested in aerospace and excited about what the space frontier holds. Um, which has led me down the rabbit hole of understanding current space applications in, in defense technologies. Um, and, I, and I've come across some really scary information on the defense technology side, where just like in the, in the tech and startup ecosystem, folks are not too focused on where stuff comes from. In the defense ecosystem for the United States right now, we have not been focused on where our stuff comes from for the past 20 or 30 years. Um, if we were to go fight a war with China tomorrow, and it was a protracted war of attrition, let's say, and we had no access to Chinese supplies of some of these materials, our technology economy would collapse, our entrepreneurial economy would collapse, our startup economy would collapse, and most importantly, our national defense and national security uh, ability to go produce the most important materials for us to protect ourselves, like F-35 fighter jets, Tomahawk missiles, nuclear submarines, we would cease to be able to produce all of those. Um, so for everything I've realized, for everything from our iPhones to bleeding edge technology products to defense technologies, we do not know where our stuff comes from. And I am blessed and also, you know, plagued by the fact that I'm a young person who's recognized this issue. And it has become a deep passion for me to help do what I can to solve this, this, this problem that the United States faces, this critical and existential vulnerability that we face, um, and do what I can to advocate and have conversations around helping entrepreneurs, innovators, uh, industrialists, and the broader United States community solve the fact that we do not know how to make things here domestically in the United States. Man, that is a motivating statement, particularly that you made about a minute ago, that like if we were to have a protracted engagement with China, all of these different things would collapse, including mm -hmm. military. Uh, so let's, let's mm -hmm. jump into the evidence for that. So let's just start mm -hmm. off with how would you summarize our current vulnerability and I'll, and I'll like the categories, you can emphasize what you want, but mm -hmm. I would say materials, energy, economic, like the state of our vulnerability yep. to China. So let me focus on my, 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 my area of knowledge. I won't say expertise because I'm far from an expert on any of the, these different, different topic areas, but my area of knowledge predominantly is in materials manufacturing. And again, that where stuff comes from theme on the physical goods side. And I'll illustrate it through two different trains of thought that I have been deep diving into over the past six months. The first is rare earth elements. We have been talking about rare earths the past 30 years, but there's been no significant action taken by the United States. Rare earths, if you look at a periodic table, there are the 15 elements that are kind of pulled out and on the bottom of the periodic table, those two rows, plus two other ones that are above them for whatever reason, they're incorporated into the rare earth element category. Rare earths are extremely unique and they have extremely unique electronic, magnetic, and optical properties. Um, and, and to back up for a second, let's just define what an atom is. An atom is a, it's a material made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons that for all intents and purposes outside of nuclear, nuclear physics is indivisible. We can't 
take one atom and turn it into another. That type of alchemy doesn't exist outside of a, a particle accelerator or the sun or over extremely long periods of time. So for any practical engineering or manufacturing purpose, an atom of, of hydrogen is an atom of hydrogen. An atom of carbon is an atom of carbon. An atom of neodymium, which is one of the rare earth elements, is an atom of neodymium. You can't make more of it, uh, again, outside of nuclear processes, which are extremely dangerous, extremely expensive, uh, extremely inefficient, and we do not have the physics to do that yet. Um, you can imagine a future where there's some sort of Star Trek replicator where you can put in what you want and it can rearrange atoms, it can rearrange quarks and, and neutrons and protons to exactly what you want, but we do not have that physics yet. So let's just keep in mind that atom, atoms are atoms. An element is an element. It, it's, it's unchanging. It's not going to automatically change from gold into silver. It doesn't happen. Um, so rare earths are a series of elements. Each of them is a unique type of atom. It has a unique number of, of protons. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a box on the periodic table. And there's 17 of these that they're bundled together as the rare earths. Right now, the United States is 100% reliant on China to import goods made of rare earths. We have a small ability to mine a, a small subset of these rare earths, but even what we mine in the United States is then shipped back to China to process and then shipped to the United States. Now, what are rare earths used for? The most common use case for them are magnets. You might've heard of neodymium magnets. Um, in your world, folks will probably talk about them in wind turbines. Um, they make fantastic um, electric motors uh, or the reverse of an electric motor is an electric generator. So basically you spin a metal rod in the middle of a magnetic field and that creates an electric current. Um, we also use them in headphones. The headphones I'm wearing right now have neodymium magnets in them to oscillate and make sound. Your iPhones have neodymium magnets in them. Another very common class of, or not, or application of, of rare earths Yttrium in laser optics, uh, in our in our in our uh, fi in our in fiber optics for five G networks or for any other communication networks, these elements are pervasive throughout our economy, and you can imagine all of the different use cases from medical use cases, MRIs, in ventilators during COVID. We had a conversation around rare earths, uh, F thirty five fighter jets. They they probably use I don't I don't know if they specifically how many of the rare earths they use, but they use upwards of. 12 to seven, all 17 of them um, in things like guidance systems in there some of the more high strength alloys that that are used in esoteric parts of f-35 fighter jets they're used everywhere and we cannot run our economy without them and right now just to answer your question very directly we import hundred percent of them of the finished goods of these materials from china can't do it we can't do it without them the other area that i want to call attention to is in the semiconductor and kind of electronic components market um, Semiconductors very specifically, and this is going to get a little bit more complicated geopolitically, but, but right now, Taiwan, which I, I do not think is part of the People's Republic of China, I think Taiwan is, is a democratic, independent state, um, and I pray for them every day that they will not have to suffer an invasion uh, imminently, but Taiwan produces 51% of the global semiconductor supply, approximately. They also produce some of the most cutting edge semiconductors that we use in all of our technology. Um, semiconductors, you can kind of roughly gauge how cutting edge they are based on the, this, the, dis, the distance and spacing between transistors. Uh, we cannot pr currently produce five nanometer transistors in the United States. The only country in the world that can is Taiwan. So you can, um, you can see why China might have significant interest in Taiwan. Um, and you can see how our defense applications might suffer if we were no, out, no longer able to access those five nanometer transistors. Um, Another example, Alex, I believe that you, you tweeted about this a few days ago when it comes to, 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 solar, uh, to solar cells. Um, there's a province in China called, I always mess this up because my, my, my Jersey accent does not go well with pronouncing <laughs> Chinese, Chinese city names. Uh, Xinjiang province in China is, is home to the infamous uh, Uyghur Muslim concentration camps. Uh, and there's a large percentage of U.S. solar cells that are imported from overseas come from that province. Um, now, I'm not a huge advocate of solar for grid scale, but we can see we are shifting over to a renewable energy economy, um, how that would be very problematic that we're having all of our energy source come from an adversarial mission that does not like us, that does not have the highest respect for, and regard for human rights, um, does not have the highest regard for environmental rights. Um, Alex, I'm not sure about you, but even though I don't love the, the, the climate change focused energy policy, I 
consider myself an environmentalist. I love clean oceans. I love to surf. I love to go hiking in new and interesting parts of the world. And I like seeing some of the some of the crap that China is doing to to lakes, rivers, oceans, and 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 uh, beautiful mountains that they have out in China and in Xinjiang, Mong Inner Mongolia, um, Tibet, etc. Um, so. Uh, that was a long-winded answer, but I think the answer to you, I think that does a solid job of illustrating how dependent we really are in very specific and tactical places on China to supply some of these critical and esoteric materials for our economy. So just to make sure I get this, so basically every like every product or component that's rare earth, we depend on China for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, listen, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure there's some guy sitting in his garage taking neodymium magnets and attempting to melt them down or like repurpose them. So assuming assuming that that point zero zero one percent of all you know finished goods that are sold in the United States is a high tech economy, we cannot make them in the United States without them passing through China. So how did this come about? How did this situation come about where there seems to be no strategic mm -hmm. interest? I, mean, I don't know if Trump was a little bit, but uh, I don't. I see almost no strategic discussion of this issue from any president I can remember. Yeah. So, so President Trump actually spearheaded a few a few initiatives to help reinvigorate this industry, um, and that's kind of how this conversation got started. It's it's part of how I got interested in this conversation. That we put out a 2018 executive order about critical minerals and recognizing that we are way too dependent on China and other unstable. Um, unstable or tyrannical regimes or adversarial regimes around the world for a lot of our critical minerals, out, even outside of rare earths, things like cobalt, lithium. Um, what else is on? There's a ton on that list. There's there's 35 that they classified and 35 and the rare earths are listed as one type of critical mineral because they all come from the same mineral deposit. Um, but how did this get started? This got started because China viewed, and let's just focus specifically on the rare earths for a second. China has viewed since the 1970s, 1980s, rare earths as a very strategic resource. They recognize the technological importance of this resource. There's, an, there's a um, really relevant quote here when Deng Xiaoping, and I'm, I wrote it down just because I wanted to, I wanted to bring it to your audience. Uh, in 1992, Deng Xiaoping says, the Middle East has oil, China has rare earth elements. So they realized wow. back from the lessons of the, of the Arabs in the Middle East, from the lessons of Iran, from Saudi Arabia, from the United Arab Emirates, from all of these massive oil producing countries, the importance of controlling a high tech and economic driver of a resource. Um, and so they have made many strategic moves, and I can get into a few of the ones that they've made over the past few years, over the past few decades, to dominate and domineer this supply chain uh, and strategically undercut the United States' ability to compete in this market. And not just the United States, but the entire, uh, let's call it the allied West. Um, in this in this cold war that we're seeing unfolding before us. Okay, give me a, give me a sense of some of those moves. Yeah, so there was a company. So the the largest producer, and and I and I believe for a large portion of time, the only producer of integrated rare earth products and uh, or magnets um, that was supplied defense application to the United States was a subsidiary of GM called Magniquench. Uh, in 1996, I believe 1996. Um, a Chinese conglomerate, conglomerate chaired by two of Deng Xiaoping's son-in-laws came in and tried to purchase MagnaQuench from, from GM. Uh, CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, had some problems with this, with this investment. Um, for some reason or another, the investment ended up on then-present Bill Clinton's desk. And for some reason or another, this this investment was signed off on and this Chinese conglomerate was allowed to purchase MagnaQuench under the conditions that they would not remove the line from the United States. Fast forward to 2003 and what is the new owners, this Chinese conglomerate of MagnaQuench do? They've, they've taken this entire production line, replicated it over in China. Uh, and then in 2003, they shut down MagnaQuench's line. I believe the plant was in Indiana um, in 2003, leaving the United States with no ability to produce magnets for defense applications. Um, so that, that's one really tactical example of how this unfolded. Other examples, China over the past 50 years has really heavily invested in creating new applications and new technologies for processing of rare earth elements. So they've been investing in new magnet technologies, new communication fibers that use rare earths, new coatings, new super alloys, et cetera, that use rare earth elements. Um, I'll also note that these elements are, are called rare earth elements, but they're not really rare around the world. Um, they're, in, they're in pretty substantial abundance. If you go in your backyard, you probably have, if not, if not 
if not all of them, a handful of the rare earths just in your in the soil that's in your backyard. The problem is finding it in a economically viable um, mine. So is there a concentration that's viable to actually go and mine uh, where you can actually turn a profit? So you can see how that, how that would lead to the price of rare earths being fairly high, because if you have a deposit that's that's not economical to mine, then you need to increase the price per unit uh, of, of the rare earth that you're selling. So what does China have that the US does not when it comes to economics? They have a government that is willing to take any cost to go achieve a strategic advantage. They also have a government that does not care too much, I would say at all, about human, human rights. Um, they do not have a government that cares about the environment. They do not have a government that cares about, you know, playing nice on the world stage. So while the United States and the United States mining projects have had to play by the rules when it comes to human rights, when it comes to labor costs, let's say, when it comes to OSHA regulations, when, and then when it comes to EPA and environmental regulations, which only increase the cost of these already costly um, products to mine, uh, China does not have to play by those rules. Uh, there's, there was a 2015, I believe, a BBC article that came out about a, a dystopian lake in, in Inner Mongolia, where basically they put all the disgusting, environmentally toxic mine tailings from rare earth mining and processing uh, in, in China. Um, they just don't care. And therefore, they're able to undercut the, the market on per unit production price. They also have been known in China to manipulate currencies and manipulate prices uh, of different products. Um, and there is an argument to be made. I do not necessarily have any empirical data at hand for this, but there's an, there are arguments to be made that that China has manipulated the price to the low side of rare earths. So they've held the market price down over the past few years, or not the past few years, again, past few decades, so that the United States mining projects would not be incentivized to actually go start those mines, whereas China doesn't care if they're bleeding money and selling things at a loss. They just want the strategic advantage of dominating the rare earth supply chain. Does that answer that question? Yeah. So let's take, so if we just look at physically, is there any reason mm -hmm. why the US couldn't develop these, like, do we have decent mines mm -hmm. uh, from a physical potential that we could have mm -hmm. a, a rare earth industry here? We do. Yeah, we have some of the most rich mineral deposits in the world in the United States, rivaling Canada and Australia. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's really, I mean, there's two things that strike me. So one is just, I don't think of the U.S. as really having a foreign policy in the honorable sense of the word. Mm -hmm. And I think you saw this with 9-11 and leading up to 9-11, where if you think about foreign policy, a lot of it is identifying uh with a real understanding, who is your ally and who is your enemy and what different people's objectives are. And you had this whole, what I would call Islamic totalitarian movement, where there are people with the open objective of getting the entire world to submit to Islamic law. Now, how realistic that is, is one thing, but there are clearly a lot of people who believe this. And there are certain governments, including Iran, uh, who became based on this. And you know, doing things like saying, okay, if Salman Rushdie publishes a novel that we don't like, we get to announce a global death decree on it. Mm -hmm. And the US basically does nothing about that. So it's like, we, we don't identify who is our ally, who is our enemy. And I think it's in a sense, the worst with the more edge cases. So with something like China, or you can look historically at Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, there are certain things where they're nice and certain things where they're not. And there's, there's just no thinking about what are the objectives of China? What is it actually trying to mm -hmm. do? How is it trying to get there? And without understanding where they are and where they want to be and how they want to get there, you cannot make intelligent decisions. I want to ask you about that in a second, but I said two things. So the, the other thing is just, we have no serious value anymore of industrial progress mm -hmm. in this country in terms of recognizing that human flourishing, including uh, you know, an enjoyable environment, enjoyable outdoor environment, like all of that depends on industry, which means transforming mm -hmm. the earth. That's the only mm -hmm. way we get stuff. It mm -hmm. comes from the ground and mm -hmm. we don't value that. And so you just look at it as just industry after industry, the whole quote environmental movement is not allowing us to do that. So you, you, you combine these two factors, which is no real thoughtful foreign policy and then no industry domestically. Mm -hmm. And then it makes sense that we're getting there. So mm -hmm. feel free to comment on either of those. 
Yeah, so I'll take the second one first. And there's been two trends that have really struck me this year. The first, uh, we had another failure of a Boeing 777 yesterday, United, United Airlines flight. I don't know if you, you, you might have yeah. seen this. One of the engines exploded and they dropped a bunch of shrapnel over a town in Colorado. So we've seen a great two great industrial companies in the United States, Boeing and Intel, have serious production and manufacturing problems um, over the past 18 to 24 Four months. Boeing with the 737 Max with their 777s, and there was another another plane in there that I'm not, I don't remember what it was. And then also with their Starliner um, space space capsule um, that had a, that also had production problems. And then on the Intel side, Intel has failed to produce seven nanometer chips, um, which is the you know the bleeding edge. Again, I mentioned that Taiwan Semiconductor is already at five nanometers. They failed to do that uh, quarter after quarter for the past I think two or three quarters, which is not good. Um, so you're seeing a very interesting decline in the United States' ability to stay at the bleeding edge of industry and production. Um, the, the other thread that I wanna that I wanted to pull and that I've been thinking about, and I, I think you'll find interesting, Alex. Um, and this is this is I'm still flushing this out in some of my writing, but if you look at an, an iPhone, right, and you look at the 40 different elements that are present in an iPhone and where they come from and the global supply chains that are involved in them, and if, if you just look at the rare earth component of that. Um, an iPhone should not cost $1,000 right now. We are subsidizing it with human rights violations in China. We're subsidizing it with you know, the strategic disadvantage that the United States has by depending on you know, Apple manufacturers in China to produce these products and to provide the, the rare earths. Um, and I kind of view it as though there is a debt being taken out from uh, five years from now uh, of the ability for someone five years from now, 10 years from now to actually purchase an iPhone or to purchase a piece of technology um, that we are, that, that is giving us the ability to have technology that's way more advanced than our industrial uh, capacity and the, and the productivity that we actually have to make some of these devices. And I am just um, trying to wrap my head around what happens when these, this flow of cheap electronics, of cheap abundant electronics gets cut off because they're not sustainable and, and the supply chains for them are not resilient. And I don't mean sustainable in the, in the environmental sense, I mean sustainable in the business sense. Um, what happens and, and what happens to, to, to the consumer in five to 10 years when we have a serious problem with China uh, and we are not able to get access to a laptop or an iPhone, et cetera, and what are we gonna, say to the supply chain decisions we made now then um, when push comes to shove. So that, that's just an interesting kind of theme that I've been thinking a lot about was the kind of future subsidy uh, of access to these um, cheap abundant electronics with cheap abundant electronics now. So how do you, I'm curious how you, when you're looking at those numbers, how do you, like, how do you go about saying like, oh, an iPhone should actually be $2,000 or $3,000? How, how are you making that calculation? Yeah, so so one of the things that I'm, I'm attempting to do is read the what it would cost to mine some of these materials in the United States and get some sort of multiple for, hey, there's this much neodymium in an iPhone, there's this much yttrium in an iPhone, um, and you know, just do the, do the multiplication of here's what it costs in China and here's what it costs as a component of this iPhone versus here's what it would cost if we actually were to produce this in the United States, because the unit production cost in the United States is substantially higher, especially now, and especially if we were to have open mine ten year, mines 10 years ago, um, which we which we did not do. Interestingly, if you're right about that, uh, definitely send it over. So tell us what's, I, I mentioned that I think we don't have a real foreign policy because we don't think about other countries' goals. What do you see as China's goals? Yeah, I I think China's been pretty pretty self evident with their goals, and I can send you some some literature and also some pretty crazy video footage uh, of some Chinese Chinese uh, officials talking about this. I think that they want a reunification of what was historical China uh, first and foremost. I think that we saw that with Hong Kong this year, which in my opinion was one of the most undercovered and underrated stories of all of 2020, and probably the craziest thing to happen around the geopolitical stage uh, beyond COVID, beyond anything else. China basically. Um, walked right into Hong Kong, took over one of the leading financial markets in, in the world, took over one of the beacons of democracy in the Southeast, and the United States didn't do a whole lot about it, um, which is pretty crazy. They wanted to do, they're doing the same thing in Tibet. Uh, they're doing the same thing. They're going to be doing the same thing in Taiwan. And they talk very openly about Taiwan as part of China. And if they do not comply, we will use force to go and you know invade and retake Taiwan. The same thing in Mongolia. Um, 
I think that there's a lot, and I'm not, I think there are a lot of disputes with, with the Indians over what is, what is part of China, what's part of India. We saw a huge border clash with the Indians. Um, I think in the middle or end of la the middle or beginning of last year, 2020 is very fuzzy and it blends into like November, December, 2019 sometimes. Um, so I think first and foremost, they want to reunify China. Uh, they want to uh, become a, a old super superpower. They are through the Belt and Road Initiative, and this is another very interesting area that I think would be worth us spending some time on. Through the Belt and Road Initiative, they are very strategically and very deceitfully working to, to take over the financials, working to take over the resources, working to take over the infrastructure in second and third world, and even some first world countries like Luxembourg um, across the world. Uh, they want what I see as, I, I don't know that I would call it global domination, but they want global dominance. They want the ability to enforce their will from Beijing um, on their adversaries, on their enemies. Uh, and they want to try to do it without having to fight and wage a war. It's, it's a very interesting, complicated problem and challenge, and it is extremely multifaceted. It has a technology flavor. It has a, a military flavor. It has an infrastructure flavor. It has a, a space and exploration flavor. Uh, it's all-encompassing, and they've been developing a very holistic strategy and taking chess moves like, like dominating the rare earth market, which the United States would never have thought to do. Uh, and so many different industries. Here's an example. Um, the United States controls the GPS system that all of the world uses or that all of the world did use for navigation systems. Right, Not right now, but 10 years ago or so, China started to develop their own version of GPS, a global positioning system owned and operated by China. Um, they are having countries that they go and they provide financial project, finance, financing for projects or, or building infrastructure or, or financing a mine, whatever it might be. They go to those countries and they say, hey, if we give you this financing, you have to come onto our GPS network. You have to operate our GPS. We want to own the ability for people to navigate around the globe. Um, and, and you can see where that leads when it comes to dominating everyday life for billions of people all around the globe. Um, so we talked about their control of these critical markets in terms of rare earths in particular. I mean, even that is just huge. Or what incidents or trends have you seen that they're actually going to exploit this vulnerability? So in 2020, at the end of 2020, uh, the United States approved a 1.8, 1.3 or $1.8 billion arms sale to Taiwan uh, from Boeing, Lockheed, and Raytheon, three of the big defense primes in the United States, uh, for a range of missile defense systems, missiles, artillery, uh, anti-ship missiles, et cetera. Um, when that happened, China almost immediately said, hey, if this sale goes through Boeing, Lockheed and Raytheon, uh, we are going to embargo you, boycott you, place sanctions on you, etc. You can see the implications of that for a company like Boeing that sells a fair amount of 737 Maxes and 777s to Chinese markets. Uh, but you can also see the implications on that from the rare earths perspective, when these are the same companies building Tomahawk missiles and F-35 fighter jets for the United States government. Uh, what happens if they're not able to access rare earths that they're buying from their Chinese suppliers because the Chinese government says, hey, if this arms deal goes through, we're not going to allow you to have access to these materials. And this came back up uh, this past two weeks um, when, when some of these systems actually made their way into Taiwan uh, and Taiwan actually started to deploy some of these systems because China was flying. This has been an ongoing thing for the past I, I don't know, five, 10 years where China will fly a, 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 a group of F-30, oh, not F-35s, but they're, they're cutting edge fighter jets along the coast of Taiwan. And then Taiwan will deploy their fighter jets. They'll deploy missile defense systems, et cetera, et cetera. China's just been pushing the balance with Taiwan for a while. Uh, so these missile systems actually were deployed in Taiwan and there have been whispers um, and some, I don't want to call them leaks, but rumors through the rare earth industry. There was a Fast Times article about this um, that, I, that I can forward to you where the Chinese government was asking some of the leaders in the rare earth market, hey, how badly would it hurt the United States military if we cut off, if we cut off rare earths to Boeing, Lockheed, and Raytheon? Um, you know, there's no names attached to that, but it's a Fast Times article. There's definitely rumors out there through my network. I've been hearing these rumors. Um, it's a scary thing to think about, like with a flip of a switch, China could just say no more, no more rare earths to these companies, to the United States. 
is that a tangible example that uh, that helps illustrate the severity and, and intensity of the problem? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it just man, they're just all these things you look at historically and you think, God, this this one party was just really strategic, and this other party was just screwing around, and that's yeah. what the U.S. feels like right now. It's just in yeah. terms of like, what the hell are we? You know, it's all like like fighting climate catastrophe through mandatory mm-hmm. solar and wind, just every kind of, you know, strife domestically, like setting mm-hmm. groups against one another, fixating on all the celebrity stuff. And it's just, there's like a serious group that is moving its agenda forward. And, and I think a non-trivial part of it is, it seems like we give them a license to steal a lot of our intellectual property. Is that, mm-hmm. is that accurate? No, I 100%. I, I wouldn't even know where to start with the intellectual property theft. It's so it's so broad and uh, and 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 deep. Um, there's a there's an article I've been reading this week about a company called Micro Strategy Corporation. They provided. Um, oh yeah, I know that. So you, if you might have heard about this, they they provided uh, they, they provide server racks to the Defense Department or chips for server racks to the Defense Department. They manufactured a lot of this in China, and there's this this crazy article that I've been reading about how through 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 these through these chips that were manufactured in China they sold them to the defense department and then the chinese there was a massive hack at the defense department they traced back to these chips um, within the past 3 or 4 years it's it's just an, a nutty thing um, that is just starting to, we're just starting to 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 see some of this bubble to the surface and there are so many examples that we know about there have to, I mean, there's, there's probably an insane amount of examples that we don't know about. Um, on your point about, about how the United States has kind of been fooling around with these issues that are, yeah, okay, fine. They might be massive issues on a 2000 year timescale, but let's, our country needs to survive that long for that actually to, to, to be meaningful. Um, there's a telegram from 1946, right when World War II ended, written by a man named George Keenan, who was stationed at the consulate, a consulate or the embassy in Moscow? He was the chief diplomat to the Kremlin. Uh, again, right after the right after World War II, he was one of the first diplomats to 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 the Soviet Union. Uh, and in this telegram, he writes it. He writes it's like it's a crazy length for a telegram. I, I don't even remember how many pages it was. I think it was something like twenty or twenty-five pages. But again, telegram. That's a pretty substantial amount of information to send over a telegram wire. Um, he writes back to the White House and he just reports on the state of communism in the Soviet Union. He says, first of all, this is crazily unsustainable. The people here are suffering like crazy. Um, but there's a broader chess game being played here. And I'm summarizing and paraphrasing, obviously. There's a broader chess game being played here and the communists will try to eat us from within. And they recognize that the way that they're going to beat us is not through direct warfare. It's through proxy wars. It's through infiltrating and and um, es- infiltration and espionage. It's through subversion. It's through trying to influence domestic affairs in the United States and in Western countries. Uh, it's through creating racial tensions. He explicitly says this. He says it's through creating economic rifts. He says it's through trying to attack the institutions like religious institutions is trying to attack institutions like community institutions and, and really rip the country apart from within. And that the Soviets realized it wasn't going to happen overnight, that it was a long game that they needed to go and they needed to attempt to play. And it's very eerie when you read this telegram and you think back, and I wish I had it in front of me so I can pull one or two of my, fa- my, on my favorite, but the, the scariest quotes from it. It's really eerie when you read, read back at this telegram and you apply it to what's happening in the United States. You just apply it to 2020. Um, and it is crazy how closely it follows the, the narrative that we're seeing unfold with our kind of cold proxy wars with China. Um, I, 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 did you see the Epoch Times article that I, uh, that I forwarded yes. over to you? Yeah, I did. So, so there's an Epoch Times infograph. Um, so just for the, for the audience, there's an info, Epoch Times infograph that if anyone wants to go Google it, and if you Put it in the show notes or or however you communicate it that breaks down kind of the i think it was like 20 different areas where the chinese have been very strategically attacking the united states um economically politically culturally etc and it's if you look at that epoch times article and then you read back at this long telegram from 1946 about how communism will attempt to dominate the west it lines up almost perfectly it's it's pretty freaking crazy wow yeah it's uh Really, I mean, I'm glad I'm glad we're having you on to discuss this. So let's just, and this is somewhat of a rhetorical question because you can guess my answer, 
But I'm curious <laughs> on your view of China's net zero commitment. So just to set this up, I, I mean, I had one uh, of my most popular tweets, well, before the whole Texas thing, where I suddenly became a, a star on Twitter for two days. Uh, but the it was I was talking about, I was doing some tweets about China. And I just pointed out, you know, they set a five-year high for coal production, a record, this is pandemic year, mind you, record for oil imports, building 100 plus new coal plants. And yet our most influential man in finance, Larry Fink of BlackRock, writes a letter. And the only thing he says about China is they've made a historic commitment to net zero. And so to me, this just strikes me as like, this is just a strategic play. They, they're more than happy to say something that gets us to deindustrialize. Right. I mean, guess I guess yeah. us to abandon fossil fuels and they can use five times more electricity than we do, which they already are. They can get it 66 percent from coal and they can use that coal powered electricity to make us solar panels and wind turbines using rare earth elements that can only come from them. So to me, this just seems like another strategic ploy. I'm curious what you think. I have a joke to make, but I don't want to make it on the air. So I'll tell you after we get off of oh, uh, off man. of air. Oh, um, um, however, I think it's a crock of shit, if I'm allowed to say that on the podcast. Sure. That it's it's actually it's actually insane how how China is responsible for not only making a lot of these uh, a lot of these renewable technologies, but exporting them in mass to the United States. Um, if you look at a lot of the wind turbines, if you look at a lot of the solar panels that we get, they come from China. And I think it's I, I don't know how it's happening. I don't know why it's happening. But there's no way that China is committing to net zero. They are building more coal plants than anyone in the world. They're not only building coal plants in China, but through the Belt and Road Initiative, they're building coal plants all over the world, all over the world. They're building nuclear plants in China and all over the world. While they export and commit while they export these renewable technologies that they're actually manufacturing to the United States, and they commit to to um, to net zero things in the world stage, which doesn't mean anything because China's not playing. China's not playing a, a commitments game. They're playing on a world domination game. Um, I think it's. I think it's just no way that they're committing to net zero. And if you look at some of the, the mining projects that they're using, they're building coal plants to support the mining projects to go mine the rare earths that you need and the other esoteric minerals you need to go create the renewables that they're then sending to the United States. And it's just a crazy phenomenon of people having no idea where their stuff comes from. Uh, and that's that's kind of how this thesis started because you, if you look. I was looking at a solar panel and I'm a, I'm a type of materials engineering background. And I'm like, there's a lot of different things going on in the solar panel. There's a lot of different elements in the solar panel. And they don't all come from the same place. Like there's no way they all come from the same place. How did these things get shipped around the world? How did these things actually get pulled out of the ground? Uh, how, what did we do with the waste from producing these different things? And, and also what are we going to do with the solar panel after it's had, it, after it reaches its end of life? Are we going to just like burn it and throw it, throw the waste in a toxic slush pool? Like, what, we're not thinking through any of this. China's thinking through all of it. They're making very strategic decisions about how to deploy their capital, how to deploy their energy. Um, I'm not I'm not familiar with this, but there's a whole trade war going on between China and Australia over coal and iron and other other commodity materials that I think you'd be interested in. I'm not I, I don't know enough to talk coherently about it, but I'm familiar with it. So I think it is like I said, I think it's a total crock of shit. I think it's absolutely crazy that that anyone thinks that China is going to be net zero by whatever year. Um, and it perplexes me, confuses me, and I uh, it, it frightens me, to be to be frank. Yeah, that, I mean, that we buy it. I mean, that, that we act like yeah. this is, I mean, so people don't, I don't think people understand, you build these coal plants to last 40 plus years. Yep. Like if you're building it in 2021, they want it, they don't want it to end in 2028. Mm -hmm. They're not making investments in a seven-year mm -hmm. coal plant. Mm -hmm. uh, and And so it's just, you know, one one thing that strikes me about why people want to believe it is because the modern environmental movement is in many ways a religion. And it's sort of core. The, I mean, the, the overall commandment is thou shalt not impact nature. But at the moment, it's thou shalt not impact the atmosphere with CO2. That's like, and there's this view that some way, shape or form, we have to get to net zero by 2050, or maybe they'll accept 20. Like, it's just this made up thing. Like, we've got a whole world that works on fossil fuels. And it works on fossil fuels because they have these unique properties that only nuclear can eventually compete mm -hmm. with, but they're naturally stored, naturally concentrated, naturally abundant. There's nothing else like it. So our whole world is built around the unique properties of, of fossil fuels, uh, plus 
they're built on what? They're and they're built on generations of economic mm-hmm. innovation and achievement. Like we've spent like millions of people have spent generations figuring out how mm-hmm. to take these amazing materials and apply them to all these things. There's no planes that are not powered by like the, we the whole world is is designed using fossil fuels. And so you can part of my thesis is if you like the modern world at all, if you like living to 70 or 80 versus 40, like fossil fuels, that's the way to do it for decades. And if you want to change that, then you have to innovate something better, which is almost certainly going to come from nuclear. But people just have this idea, oh, no, I don't like, I think it violates my religion that it puts CO2 in the atmosphere. So it shouldn't. And so we should be able to get there. And domestically, they believe, oh, well, Biden said, he said, we're going to be net zero. And Larry Fink said it, so it must happen. And then they think, oh, it must be a way for China to do it too. And so they just come up with this, even though China is like, everything they're doing is, no, we want even more CO2 emissions. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's just amazing how they're blinded by this faith. And unfortunately, as you're pointing out, it's not just it, this faith is coming at the, the cost of our national security because we're allowing them to empower. And then we are disempowering and we're also dematerializing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, listen, I, 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 um, I love batteries. Let me, I'll say that. I love batteries. I think batteries are phenomenal technology. I think the application using them in electric vehicles or electric aircraft is Electric aircraft, there's applications for it, but electric electric cars is ridiculous. It, it doesn't make any sense. Here's why: we can ignore all the energy 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 considerations for a second. We don't have enough material, like raw material. We don't have enough lithium to meet the battery demands that we're going to have in every other high tech part of our economy. Because think about what what requires batteries. Sensors require batteries. We're talk. You hear people talk about a trillion sensor economy all the time, where you'll be able to monitor every piece of the world, your life, etc. Those all require batteries. You want to have uh, an Apple Watch. You want to have an iPhone. You want to have a computer. All of those different devices are require batteries. If you want to have any portable electronic, you need batteries. There are so many existing applications for batteries, and we don't have enough materials to meet the forecasted demands. Drones. Drones are going to be everywhere within the next 10 to 15 years. You know how many batteries we need to be able to power drones? You can't use fossil fuels for that application. Um, so it doesn't. Ma- it's very illogical to me why we come to these conclusions and say, hey, this technology works for some reasons. And like, it's a kind of cool technology. Like solar is really cool. Being able to take light from the sun and turn it into usable electricity for mankind, it's a pretty cool piece of physics. Um, But it doesn't work for large scale energy applications. At the same time though, if I'm living in the woods and I don't want to have to have a gas line going to my house, I'm going to buy a bunch of solar panels, put them on my house and be able to have energy generation capability. So, So I think it's really interesting how we don't really think about where stuff. We don't think about where stuff's coming from, but we're also not thinking about where stuff's going. And and like you're saying, fossil fuels are amazing for what they do, and we have so much work behind them. Why do we have to leave them behind? Coupled with the fact that we don't know, we we don't think about where are all these materials going, and the fact that we have so many different innovations that are going to require the same material set that are coming online all at the same time. We don't necessarily have the capacity to go to t- totally leave fossil fuels behind. Again, I'm, I agree with you on a lot of what you say about the the, the energy and the, the reasons why we shouldn't convert to a renewable grid and renewable vehicles. But leaving all that aside, even if we keep things the way they are now and we add on all these new technologies, drones, new, more computers, more iPhones, more sensors, et cetera, we don't have enough materials to cover all of those applications. And at the same time, people want to electrify all of the things that you talk about being a terrible idea to electrify. So it boggles my mind how, how, how this know, evolves. I'm curious on, because I've never seen any real study of kind of absolute material. And, and this, you know, people got in a lot of danger with this in oil saying like, oh, mm-hmm. they'll take like the reserves numbers, which that's the presently planned production. That's not how much is in the earth. That's just how much is planned given economics and given different companies. And people would say, oh, the reserves are low, so we're going to run out. So I worry about that with lithium. How, what, what's the basis of saying, oh, we don't have enough of these materials? Yeah. Let, to let me rephrase. Let me, have, let me rephrase. We have enough of it. We don't currently mine enough of it. And we also don't have good ways to process enough of it into the large-scale battery packs that people talk about when they, when they talk about EVs. Um, so does that, does that rephrase but then, that, kind of answer those that could theoretically scale, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They definitely could theoretically scale, but think about the amount of human capital, the amount of financial capital that we need to be investing in, again, so many different technology themes. It seems to me, and I, I again, I don't have empirical data to show this. That's why I just changed and I just changed my, uh, my, my statement to say, Hey, 
sure, we definitely have the ability to go scale this production, just like with oil. We have so much of it all over the earth. I'm really interested in recycling technologies as well for a lot of these materials. I think recycling is a huge solution for, for, for lithium, again, and outside of EVs for uh, neodymium magnets, being able to you know, not have to import magnets from China, but in all of our electronics, how do you go about reclaiming um, our e-waste? Um, I think that we'll definitely be able to scale that. The, the place where I am concerned is we don't have enough capital from a financial perspective, from a human capital perspective, um, and from a know-how of actually scaling the systems because we haven't scaled these systems yet. So we still have to scale these systems. And then we can have the conversation about scaling them more than we need to scale them at this at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, so my own view is like the great thing about oil is it's, I mean, it's been discovered, our ability yeah. to produce oil has been discovered under freedom, but you didn't mm -hmm. know a hundred years ago what our ability to produce oil would be. And so mm -hmm. part of it is there are other things that didn't scale that we abandoned. Mm -hmm. But right mm -hmm. now we have this goal of a centrally dictated green economy mm -hmm. where Biden and the Chinese, like where everyone is supposedly just deciding, oh, it's going to be, everyone's going to use an EV. Mm -hmm. And like that is totally arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And you run into, and with any given component of that, you can run to un, into unforeseen scaling challenges. Mm -hmm. Even with what Tesla is doing, you see them run into different challenges. Mm -hmm. People running into challenges, semiconductors. Mm -hmm. And these are just a tiny percentage. And they're saying 100%. Mm -hmm. So in my view, it's, it's, it's not necessarily that I can prove, oh, there's not enough lithium, but it's like, mm -hmm. you have no idea how to produce this exactly. on a global scale. You don't know what you're going to run into and you don't know what it's going to cost. It already costs more to do this stuff on a small scale. There's a lot of reasons to believe it's mm -hmm. going to be uh, on a large scale. Okay. Got to wrap up soon. So let me just ask cool. uh, one more thing, which is how should our policies change, which is a big question, but we need to know your, <laughs> your overall answer. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a big proponent of individualism and allowing individual and empowering individual entrepreneurs to go solve some of these really massive challenges that we have. So on the entrepreneurial and business ecosystem side, I, when it comes to the government's involvement, I really try to say, Hey, government, you need to just stay out of the way of entrepreneurs, deregulate as much as you can and allow folks who want to go make money, make money. When it comes to the rare earth challenges, and when it comes to some of these critical minerals challenges, because there's a in my view, I believe that we are at war with China in a cold yet weirdly hot techno-infused fashion. Um, I think that the DOD really does need to take a have a seat at the table in helping to solve some of these critical minerals, um, supply chain vulnerabilities, and resiliency issues. So I'm a huge fan of the Small Business Innovation Research Grant Program, the SBIR program. I'm a huge fan of Buy American Program. So, hey, DOD, if you're buying a, a new Tomahawk missile, you need to figure out how to make sure that the components of that missile are sourced from the United States. Um, I don't, I'm not a fan of that if it's not of an existential importance and if we are not in some sort of wartime environment. But I, again, I, I do believe that we are in a weird techno cold war with China at the, this point in time. And I think the DOD needs to incorporate those two types of programs. Again, innovation grants for new ways to use, use materials, new ways to process materials, um, and then buy American um, clauses to say, hey, if we're buying Tomahawk missiles, we really need to make sure that every component sourced from US suppliers now so that those companies like Lockheed might be able to go buy contracts that are a little bit more expensive for magnets for, than they are from their Chinese counterparts from United States mines and United States processing facilities. And then we can get that capital system working. Um, I think that companies need to start using different discount rates um, when they're thinking about their sourcing decisions. Sorry, decisions. Uh, I think that that is a really real possibility of, hey, Apple might not be able to sell iPhones to US consumers at some point in the future if China just decides to not let these materials into, into uh, into U.S. markets. So, what is Apple going to do in that in that point in time? Um, and I think that, that from the from the private industry and from some of the bigger companies that have the buying power in the private industry, I think they need to start using different discount rates to start changing their sourcing decisions towards Buy American um, initiatives. Um, I also think that the Trump administration did a phenomenal job. There's a gentleman Alex Ergot who talks a substantial amount about this. I think he, he's involved in the process. I'm not sure if you know him or not. Um, he, he talks a lot about how the Trump administration systematically deregulated the mining, um, the mining and the mining permitting process through through NEPA and the EPA. 
which has been a boon for mining projects. And in the last few weeks of the Trump administration, they just checked off like you're approved, you're approved, you're approved for a handful of different mining projects in the United States. So I think more deregulation of mines in the US is really important. Um, and then I think competing where China doesn't compete with us and that's on innovation and kind of white collar, white collar productivity and figuring out how we can make mining and um, mining and processing of these materials more innovative uh, and, and feed some of these um, mining projects that the economics don't currently work out for and step back, apply some of the things that the, first of all, human capital, apply some of the human capital, apply some of the methodologies, the lean methodologies, the innovation methodologies that the digital uh, and Silicon Valley ecosystems have gotten really good at. Um, I think they've, they've the best in the world at it. It's pretty phenomenal how quickly and innovatively they're able to innovate and apply some of that thinking to our raw materials supply chains, to the mines that don't work and figure out how we can create new technologies that might require upfront capital investment. Um, but if you use it an adequate discount rate and you have a long enough time horizon, the returns on that, on that capital investment, again, the, the venture capital model, um, make those technologies viable. So it's really an innovation approach that has DOD support and has support from some of the larger companies in the US that have buying powers to infuse capital into the United States raw materials ecosystem. All right. There's a lot there. I'll probably share some thoughts about that in my closing, but I want to close by asking... So what are you doing next? Because I'm guessing a lot of people are watching this say, God, this, this guy is impressive. He's got a lot of ideas. <laughs> but so what are your ambitions? Because you're not, like last time we spoke at least, your goal is not to just become like, this is a little arrogant, but like the Alex Epstein of this as a public intellectual, mm -hmm. although obviously you could, but mm -hmm. like you, you're involved in the entrepreneurial side of things, right? So tell, just tell the audience a little bit about your plans and if there's anything they can do to go along with them, invest in them, follow Definitely. You, whatever you want. Definitely. So I appreciate that, Alex. Thank you so much. Um, I have become very, I want to say disenfranchised for this, but that's just the word I've been using. Disenfranchised with the entrepreneurial ecosystem, again, with that, that startup and um, technology ecosystem, because there's no tangible focus, particularly from the, young, the younger generation on how do we actually make stuff? Um, so I am really focused now on how do I go build a manufacturing ecosystem in the United States fueled by United States talent and capital. The way that we are going about doing that is going to acquire United States manufacturing companies. A lot of them are run by folks who want to get out of industry. Um, COVID really, really pushed a lot of these businesses over that line where their founders who started these companies in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, no longer really want to be involved. They kind of want to get out and, and change ownership hands. So the first step for me is figuring out how to go, not figuring out, actually going and acquiring uh, United States-based manufacturing companies. Um, long-term, and this is a little bit tangential, my long-term goal, I love space exploration. And as once we get over this hurdle where we have a techno cold war between two great powers that could very easily devolve into thermonuclear, you know, AI powered hell. Um, sorry, sorry to, uh, to, to make it to make it dark. But once we get past that hurdle, and I think that that empowering US manufacturers is a really important piece of, of threading that needle. Um, I'm really interested in building a raw materials company to, to for space exploration. So when we go to Mars, when we go to the moon, when we go to other, other planets, we need to be able to produce things in situ on those planets. We need to be able to produce methane from carbon dioxide, which is a very interesting technology that I think you would probably be fascinated by. Um, we need to be able to produce polymers for 3D printing from the carbon in the air there. We need to be able to produce iron from the sand. We need to be able to produce magnets and integrated circuits, et cetera. Uh, so that's kind of my 25, 30 year vision in the short term, acquiring US manufacturing companies, learning as much as I can about United States manufacturing and helping to solve some of these where stuff comes from problems. Um, within the next 36 months, I'm going to be looking to acquire not only kind of integrated final product, uh, you know, manufacturing companies that might make agricultural equipment or floor polishing equipment or more industrial focused equipment. Uh, and I'm going to look to move into the component manufacturing acquisitions. Uh, so I think that semiconductor production, uh, I think that consumer electronic production, I think that magnet production are all very interesting spaces. I'm already making some investments in those, in those different areas. Um, but how can we create a United States? My whole focus now is how can we reinvigorate and make manufacturing great again in the United States uh, and get young people, get um, industry excited about making things back in the United States, uh, learn as much as I can, and then 
once we get past this techno Cold War 2.0, uh, go back to what I love in aerospace. So uh, yeah, how can people follow you? I don't know if there are any, we have a lot of wealthy listeners. I don't know if anyone can get involved with you financially, but yeah, what should people do action-wise? Yeah, so if you'd like to get in touch with me, I love having conversations with, with intelligent people who want humans to flourish more. Um, please reach out. My email is max at zahaven, Z-A-H-A-V-E-N.com. It's a play on my last name, Goldberg. Zahav in Hebrew means gold. Uh, for anyone interested, it kind of relates back to the critical mineral stuff that I am working on. Um, and then I have a website that is in progress around the where stuff comes from theme, where stuff comes from.com. That will currently link you to my personal website, maxwellgoldberg.com, uh, where I have all, all my work, my podcast blogs, where I talk about a lot of these different themes and whatnot as well. Uh, so maxadzahavan.com, you can head over to wherestuffcomesfrom.com to learn more about the critical minerals and, and, and supply chain resiliency themes that I'm talking about. And then my personal website, maxwellgoldberg.com to dive into some of the content that I've been putting out. Awesome, Max. Well, I'm sure everyone's very impressed with you. Uh, glad to have <laughs> met you and thanks so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Glad to have met you too. And thank you for all you do for human flourishing. Thanks again to Maxwell Goldberg for joining me on the show. So as I said, I'm really impressed by him. I think it's really cool that he's an aspiring industrialist, but also is just very aware of the economic issues, the foreign policy issues, and even the underlying philosophical issues involved in modern industry. When I started the Center for Industrial Progress in 2011, it was exactly this type of mentality that I was hoping to find a lot of and that I certainly want to encourage people who want to make the world a better place through industry, through transforming nature intelligently, who really understand that and embrace that versus this total contradiction of green industry, which is somehow you're going to have industry, but you're not going to impact anything. And that is a contradiction in terms and it leads ultimately to anti-industrial policies and anti-productivity uh, practices. So super great to see uh, you know, where Max is heading. I learned a ton from him. Uh, I just want to emphasize this idea. It's not my focus now. It used to be a little bit more of my focus before I started energy, but this issue of it's so important that we have goals in terms of foreign policy and and maybe even more important for this purpose, that we understand the goals of others. It's just, you cannot, so much of what goes wrong with foreign policy is there's no serious understanding of the goals of different countries in and their different strategies for getting there. And there's just a tendency to treat other countries and other leaders as if they're basically the same as the US and nobody really takes their ideas seriously. Nobody really has these grand master plans. But, you know, we saw not too many generations ago, there were a lot of people in Europe who had big master plans and those were not taken nearly seriously enough and they led to just, you know, un almost unprecedented damage. And if you look at the aspirations of different nations today, you look at the aspirations of China, you look at the aspirations of Russia, these are scary aspirations. And one thing we need to make sure is that we do not become, you know, we do not just ignore the nature of these nations and then become overly entangled uh, as if they are total allies, because that can create the kind of dangerous dependence that we were talking about today. Now, how to address all of these issues? Um, I don't agree with Max on, on all the ideas, but my main point is I want us to be aware of these challenges and to to think about it and to you know encourage different elected officials to be aware of these things and then certainly on the environmental front we need very different laws that recognize that mining the earth for valuable materials is a good thing and that we should liberate that in the US we should have proper laws to protect people from genuine endangerment but it can't be oh well any impact is bad or even any minuscule risk is bad. We have to recognize you know, mining is an essential of life and that has to be reflected in our laws. All right, that is it for this week. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Uh, I have talking points up at energytalkingpoints.com. I continue to do quite a bit on Twitter at twitter.com slash alexepstein. I think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, actually. My 
I wrote a post on Twitter that is currently my pinned tweet. So if you go to my Twitter page, it'll be at the top. Uh, it got, it's gotten almost two and a half million views so far, what they call engagements. And I, I think some of my, my, I mean, I know some of my messaging has been really influential on different people, including in the state of Texas. So check that out if you want to know my take, you know, my latest takes uh, on the blackouts. And I'll also be sharing resources that others create that are good. Uh, since I haven't talked about this in a while, but since I'm actually at a live speaking uh, event, an in-person event, and which is sort of a rare thing these days, I'll just note I am available for those as well as for virtual events. Uh, not at this moment. I'm not doing too many at the moment because I'm finishing up my book, uh, but my manuscript is due in eight days. And after that, I'll still be, I'm sure, editing it and applying the publisher's edits and stuff like that. But uh, I will definitely be much more available for different kinds of engagements. So if you're interested in that, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Uh, also make sure to get on our mailing list, alexepsteinlist.com. And if you've been seeing like the real, you, if you're on our list or you go to our website, industrialprogress.com and look at the blog, you'll see we've been getting some really awesome results lately. And a lot of that is made possible by our accelerators, the people who help uh, accelerate our research and development and our promotional efforts. So if you want to become an accelerator or become more of an accelerator, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. All right, that is it for this week. Next week, I'll be back with another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.